2: How Chantewashte na Le He Greetings and good day and welcome. I shake your hand with good feelings in my heart and it's a good day for all of us to be here, and this is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength from the East Gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Tiokasan Ghost Horse and you are listening to an all native hosted. All Native produce First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. And you can hear us now on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices, indigenousradio.org for archives. And so our first guest uh, is Mario Murillo, a frequent guest here on First Voices Radio. I'd like you to join us. All right. Joining us from Bogota, Colombia, is Mario Murillo, who is a professor of journalism and Latin American studies at Hofstra University, involved with international fact-finding throughout Colombia regarding the right-wing crackdown on the peace accord since 2016. And Mario is also the vice dean of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. So good afternoon, Mario. I know First Voices have been involved with you, along with the news coming out of Colombia and has collaborated with you a long time, since the early 2000s, I think, and what has been an ongoing crisis this year since April 28th and a month-long national strike due to the economic program. The people are in defense of basic human rights, which has been also caused by the pandemic of COVID-19. So would you update us, Mario, and welcome to First Voices.
0: Thank you, and It's always great to be with you. And uh, with your listeners and um, from here, from Colombia in particular, I'm, you know, it's hard to begin to know where to begin. I mean, essentially right now I'm accompanying an international fact-finding commission that is sponsored by a number of Colombian human rights organizations uh, under the umbrella of the Coordination Colomb- Colombia-Europa-Estados Unidos, which is the Colombia, U- Europe and U.S. coordination. And it's basically about 200 human rights groups from all three areas, from Europe, U.S., and Colombia, that have been following the human rights crisis and the internal conflict here in Colombia for years. And as, as a result of the last two, over two months of mobilizations that they called the Paro Nacional, the National Strike, um, uh, and, and which was very high profile for the first six weeks or so, really from April 28th Up until about the, pretty much until the middle of June, there was mass protests uh, in just about every major area of Colombia and even in small cities of Colombia, um, protesting a, a number is a multi-sector, multi-demand um, mobilization involving indigenous movements, involving afro columbians involving the peasant movement, involving the union movement, involving workers, students, women organizations, feminist organizations, stu- uh, student groups, um, and they were mobilizing around a series of issues that really were accumulating for the last five or six years. You mentioned the in, the 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 peace accords the peace process and the peace accords that were signed by the Colombian government and the FARC rebels back in 2016, the protest really doesn't have to do with the peace accords, really. So it's not that this is a kind of a a mobilization about the peace accords, but the mobilizations really began developing and pushing more or less at the time that the peace accords were signed. And as the Colombian government, particularly the current government, began its complete negation of the peace agreements signed with the FARC uh, agreements that were not perfect there was in fact there was a lot of problems with the uh, the instrument of the the five point peace plan that was uh, uh, that was signed by the two sides. But there were some things there that were really important to implement, like the guarantees for social movements to participate in political and social uh, uh, processes, uh, like the land reform and land issues that were being addressed, like the issue of justice for the many victims of state-sponsored and otherwise violence that's been targeting uh, communities, particularly rural and marginalized communities throughout the countryside. So there were a number of provisions in the Accords that were very favorable to moving the country forward, um, and none of them really have been implemented. And as a result of that, but also as a result of the economic program of the Colombian government, the neoliberal uh, economic pro- program that in in many ways favors corporate uh, private interests uh, the, the, and, and has benefited mostly the upper and middle classes here in Colombia, the upper middle classes of, of Colombia, and has not really benefited Masses of people around the country. Um, uh, th- there has been there have been protests over the last five years since on each one of these issues. Campesinos mobilized in 2017. Uh, we saw the women's movement. We saw the students' movement in 2018 with mass protests, in particularly here in Bogota. Uh, we saw in 2019 another national strike where, where, in many ways, this was a continuation of the national strike that started in 2019. And then, wham, the country was hammered with the pandemic last year in the, in the spring and into January, into March, April, May of last year, where everything closed down. And much like in the United States, where the pandemic has hit most most directly poor communities around the country, the same thing has happened here. Uh, and, and so the, the, the pandemic hit and, and these folks losing jobs, losing possibilities, there's a complete lack of a public health system to, to deal with the crisis. Um, right now, we're living with uh, about three to 500 people a day dying here in Colombia as a result of COVID. Even though the country's opened up at the economy, you walk around the streets and you, it's as if nothing is going on. Um, and again, usually it's the poor that are, that are most hit. So there was a plan to the National Strike Committee planned that on April 28th, they were going to go out to the streets across the country and carry out this mobilization to demand justice, to demand economic reforms, to, to, to protest the, the, the economic political plan of the current government of Ivan Duque. They went out into the streets. The Colombian government tried to prevent them from going out to the streets. The court essentially threw out the Colombian government's attempt to try to slam the brakes on the protests. They went out into the streets. So the other response of the government has been to attack them Militarily, with police and security forces, and so this commission that I'm on, uh, in many ways, is to try to keep the spotlight on the protests and the results of the protests um, by not letting it just kind of slip away in the typical impunity of the Colombian justice system. Um, so even though the, the the protests aren't at the widespread mass scale that you saw, it's, you know, even as recently as three weeks ago. The there's major concerns that the violations of human rights that were carried out about 78 people killed as a result of the protests, uh, according to some of the reports that we've been hearing about the last couple of days, 45 of which were killed by public security forces. You know, dozens of people disappeared, many people wounded, um, uh, arbitrarily detained. Um, All these issues are, are being denounced by the human rights sector. Well, and and the social movements and the and the people who've been protesting, whereas the government has kind of negated it and rejected it and it, and and essentially denied that, that 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 there's any any problem here. And fa- in fact, delegitimizing the protesters as terrorists, as um, as vandals, as as people who are you know causing problems and trouble, uh, and and essentially de- trying to delegitimize and stigmatize the the protesters here in Colombia.
2: Uh, Mario, I've been hearing these reports since we've been together on the news here uh, on First Voices. And, you know, the the administration previous and the previous one before that... You know, the intensity that it's like a step up now, but it's all coming together. When I'm thinking about the land reform that you mentioned, the that's affecting urban urbanized people, but yet those in the rural communities as well, I don't think the news travels as fast from those rural places, maybe days or two later. But what is it with the Indigenous folks out there that obviously aren't so involved in the urban setting that you talk about?
0: Well, it's interesting because the Indigenous movement, as you know, as you've talked about on First Voices the indigenous movement has always been at the forefront of the social movements in Colombia. Uh, on the one hand, demanding and reclaiming their rights, their land and territorial rights, their rights to to, to, to autonomy and to their to protect their languages, their culture, etc. Um, but also recognizing themselves as part of the national fabric and and part of the national experience. And in alliance with the peasants, peasant movement, with the Afro-Colombian movement, with the student movement, etc. Uh, so for decades, the indigenous movement has been at the forefront of that. Um, and they, you know, ironically, during these protests, they weren't initially part of the the Baro Nacional, the national strike, which was called back on April 28th. They weren't part of that offic- originally. Um, they were actually involved in another mobilization that was known as the continuation of what we've talked about on this show many times the Minga Indígena Popular, the, the popular indigenous Minga, Minga as the collective action into a petitions of defense of territory, but also because in the recent, in this past year in particular, dozens of indigenous activists and leaders have been uh, uh, executed, um, you know, summarily killed, uh, assassinated by armed groups. Um, The Colombian government doesn't want to take any responsibility for it. They talk about it as being the the action, you know, uh, 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 limited actions that have nothing to do with any systematic extermination campaign. But the evidence is, is that yes, they are targeting indigenous communities and all the other sectors as well. So when the, Confrontations on the streets of Cali, in particular, in southern Colombia and in Bogota, and were, were were really the most dramatic as part of this national strike. The indigenous movement, uh, particularly in Cauca, which again we've talked about, the Creek, the Indigenous Regional Council of Cauca, um, uh, decided to say, "Let's take the Minga, let's take the Minga to this to this." Um, uh, uh, to the protest, let's be part of the, the Paro Nacional. Ironically, when he got to Cali and joined the protest, they were targeted by the state security forces, but not only state security forces, but also uh, civilian armed groups that were working alongside security forces and essentially shooting at Creek militants, Creek organizers and activists, um, wounding a number of them. And it was, it was a horrific uh, situation in which uh, civilian, well, as they call them, the good people. These are wealthy caleños in Southern Colombia. Uh, started targeting the indigenous communities and basically saying, "Get you know, what are you doing here? You have no business doing coming here." Um, and that drew more attention to the violence and to the, to the you know, in many ways, racist uh, uh, policies of the cu- current government. Uh, and so the Minga joined the Paro Nacional, and now you're seeing them also very actively engaged. And mobilized in this in this process, Mario. What what do you think
2: would would happen once you gather the information you with all these other human rights groups and come back to the United States, wherever they're coming from? What aid can be brought there? I mean, this is a. A seminal question, but still it, it's, it's right. so expected it, is what can happen after you bring the information out, or more, more influx of more people, more human rights groups or just, you know, addressing well, the, the
0: government? Yeah, well, the goal of the commission is one that there's just to get a picture of it. There's 40 people representing 11 different countries, including Europe, Latin America, North America, Canada. Um, there's a number of indigenous representatives. Here. Here's a woman from Guatemala who's here. From Chile, and most of the people who are part of the commission have been working issues around impunity, around torture, around disappearances, around forced displacement in their territories and in their nations. You have human rights lawyers, you have human rights activists, uh, organizers, um, uh, including some documentarians and some journalists. Uh, And the idea is that, along with understanding the context of how these protests began and the, the, the 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 nature of the the mobilizations, is to also draw attention to the impunity. That's always been a problem in Colombia, but it's it's kind of run amok right now because there's so many violations that have been documented by human rights groups in Colombia, uh, particularly around this this situation, the current paro nacional, the national strike that the government is basically, again, ignoring and saying that this is not this is not fair, is not true. If anything, they're going even further to stigmatize the protesters. So the idea of the commission is we meet here in, in, in Bogotá for these last few days, and starting today, in fact, people are starting to go out, and later on this evening, we'll be heading to another region. Uh, so we're, they're breaking up the group to go to all these different regions. There'll be a group going to Cauca, a group going to Cali, a group going to Medellin, a group going to the coast, Caribbean coast, another group going to the uh, coffee growing region, that's where I'm going to be going later on, to speak with the first-line activists and organizers who were targeted and, and to kind of get their testimonies about what's been going on. And also talking to some of the local officials uh, public officials to see if they can respond to some of the claims and charges that are being driven against them. So it's not only about hearing the, the testimonies, but also confronting the, the authorities about this. The idea is well, once, we, once we get all that report, that reporting will come back to Bogota and the, the commission is, is, is going to put out a pretty comprehensive report. It's following on the heels of a, uh, another commission that came from Argentina that had a very critical look the, commission, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights also came here uh, and did a pretty uh, uh, critical report of the, of the way the government responded to the Paro Nacional. Um, and there's been a Human Rights Watch and a few other groups have done it that has existed. And to get the agenda, get it on the agenda of, of uh, International Criminal Court of Justice and also in other places, uh, you know, in other important uh, areas, other important places where this, these issues can be addressed.
2: All right, Mario, I know you have, you're busy down there and I'm thinking that, you know, we could do this again on Garn reports once you return or whenever you need to. Of
0: yeah, I would love to, if not, ne- if not next week after we get back or in two weeks, there's going to yeah. be a planned mobilization on July 20th, which is the inter- Independence Day here in Colombia. And so the National Strike Committee and a lot of com- community organizers are planning to get out to the streets again and, 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 you know, full force. So maybe we'll do a report around that time.
2: Yeah, let's plan on doing that. It's good to see you, friend. Yeah, thank
0: you, you Teokasin. And that
2: was Mario Maria, who's accompanying that mission he talked about um, of human rights investigators wanting to know what's going on in Colombia, the country of Colombia in South America. Mario is a professor of journalism and Latin American studies at Hofstra and is the dean, vice dean of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. And as you heard, he's written and reported about Colombia for many of those years, um, nearly 20 years, I suppose, and has been a regular guest here on First Voices.
3: Out a sword or a gun, for oh, the gold and the silver is searching is hidden out there underground. But there's a beast on the cloak, guarding against the foe, and the ghost from the river is watching. She won't let you get any close. Yeah. sound bring your rifle around when I say hallelujah it's your cue to shoot at the head of the heart. now take just what you i
1: The line. What good's a man Who's lost his soul Can't take a stand Fire. Low tide, you know Night time, the morning time Yeah, we're going strong Heading up down the river
2: Avi Copland with Change On The Rise and the former song was American Dream and I totally forgot who that was from but I'll get that for you. Um, frequently forget here sometimes because it is a community. It doesn't mean that I am perfect. I'm human and imperfect. A perfectly flawed human being. Well, here we go. Uh, this is First Voices Radio. My name is Tiokas and Ghost Horse and our next guest, Max Wilbert, who launched an occupation in January of this year of a proposed lithium mine at Thacker Pass in northern Nevada with another of our frequent guests and commentators, Will Falk. And Max Wilbert is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide and has been part of our grassroots um, political work for nearly 20 years. And he's an author, and essays have been published many places, including Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. His latest book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It, was reviewed on this show a few months back, and we we do recommend it. And Max has been involved in fighting both Canadian and Utah tar sands in resisting industrial-scale water extraction and deforestation in Nevada. In advocating for the last remaining wild buffalo In Yellowstone, in solidarity, excuse me, in solidarity work with indigenous communities in British Columbia and in campaigns against sexual violence. There is a website to learn more about what is happening at Thacker Pass, and it is protectthackerpass.org. And now um, we'll listen to Max Wilbert with this latest update because there are things going on. We sit in our little chairs and We listen to whatever we we may, and yet there are people planting seeds of trying to keep the earth alive and workable for all and livable for all life here with Mother Earth. That's great to hear from you, Max Wilberto. to protect Bihimuha and protect that Krapas is another name for it. And you've been there six months. You know, it's a long battle, like you say, um, and you're not giving up and... That the land is actually calling for more attention, you know, as all the things are happening in South America to indigenous folks, the things that are happening in Canada with the uncovering of the mass graves everywhere and barely 130 have not been uncovered. And yet in the United States, there are 357 yet to be uncovered. Um, as far as dorm, uh, residential and boarding schools are concerned. But now, reading through your through your website, protectthackerpass.org, all this action alert and what they may be doing is actually digging up grave sites and cultural sites to one day say they're not there. You have a rally coming up, but first, Max Wilbert, would you give us a, um, a background on why you went to Thacker Pass? Many people will hear this for the first time. And others have been going along and listening as we report on Thacker Pass. Would you give us that background, Max?
4: Yeah, I'd be happy to, and I really appreciate you having me on the show again. the, The background here is that lithium demand is exploding. And it's largely because of electric car batteries and energy storage. So as we're seeing this increasing transition away from fossil fuels... Or at least that's the, that's the, that's the idea. That's what people are talking about. Um, Fossil fuel use actually isn't declining, unfortunately, but as we're seeing maybe more accurately, this increase in, uh, in alternative energy sources and in electric cars, we are uh, seeing the, the raw materials that are used for those technologies and those products are becoming more and more valuable. So Lithium is an element that's used in the production of lithium-ion batteries which power cell phones, laptops and um, and as I mentioned EV batteries and and batteries used to store energy from solar and wind. And with uh, with this big expansion in demand, the the mining is increasing. So around the world most lithium today is being extracted in places like Argentina, uh, Chile, Australia, Tibet, um, various regions of the world that are pretty far from us here in you know, what's now called the United States, the occupied indigenous territories of, of this continent. And so it's coming home now. It's coming home because of this big boom in demand. It's coming to these areas. And this place in northern Nevada, uh, it's it's traditional Paiute Shoshone territory, and actually unceded territory. And this area is uh, very rich in lithium. There's a lot of lithium in the soil here, actually because uh, this used to be the old Yellowstone hotspot is what the geologists say. So the uh, the, the magma under the earth that, that creates the geysers of Yellowstone National Park today, um, the, the geologists say that 16 million years ago, that hotspot was here and it's traveled um, northeast to Montana, Wyoming, since then. Um, but while it was here, it concentrated all this lithium. So there are thousands of lithium mining claims in the state of Nevada alone. It's not just here. There's proposed lithium mining on uh, sacred Wallapai tribe territory in uh, in what's now called Arizona. Uh, there is proposed lithium mining in North Carolina. Uh, and many other places across this country. Uh, As I said, it's a booming industry. So I first heard about this Thacker Pass project when I was researching for my book, Bright Green Lies. And I came across the name Thacker Pass, Uh, read about the project, the proposal. uh, But it was sort of in a very early planning stage at that point. There was nothing happening here. Um, About a year ago, I heard that the project was moving forward pretty quickly it was fast tracked under the Trump administration. Um, all the permitting, the environmental permitting and so on was, was cut short. Um, and I decided to come out and check out the site in person. And once I was here, I just felt something from the land. I felt, I, I could see the beauty. I could see the biodiversity, uh, the wildness of this place, the spirit of it, but I really felt something as well. Um, and, you know, I have since come to learn from uh, the the folks from the Fort McDermott Paiute Shoshone tribe, who we have made friends with and have spent a lot of time with out here, uh, that this, this is a sacred site. And so I think what I was feeling was, was that sacred, that sacred energy or that sacred feeling from this place. Um, even though I didn't know it was a sacred site, I could just feel something really special about this. And I felt like uh, we had to fight for it. We had to trying to defend this place. You know, when you when you look at a landscape like this and imagine it being blown up for the production of cars coming out of a factory, it just doesn't seem different from mountaintop removal for coal mining, for example. And that's why we decided we needed to fight.
2: I'm thinking about the cultural sites that are co- sort of lock and step with disappearing cultures so that we can get into the modernity of supporting so-called unsustainable civilization right and so i'm thinking about these that 1000 cultural sites and other historical sites that are that are designated this point for destruction and yet comes along a a group called the Far Western Anthropological Research Group which kind of is misleading you think that they're there to maybe yes catalog and do the scientific research that that the title indicates but really are they there just to to see and catalog and remove these sites so that there's no sites available so these mining multinational mining corporations could come in and just do what they need to do and do their job and get out. And then what happens to the land after that, Max?
4: Yeah, well, you know, I think a lot of people when their kids are really interested in these topics. Like, I was fascinated by archaeology when I was a kid, right? Dinosaur bones and <laughs> the deep history and the past. And it's really it's really interesting. But the thing is, you know, when people... Uh, go to school for these topics and go out into the, the world and have to get a job under this economy. A lot of the jobs end up being doing unethical things, doing things that are wrong. And that's what we're seeing here with this far Western group. They have been hired by the mining company, which is a multinational corporation called lithium Americas to come in and dig up, uh, the known, uh, archaeological cultural sites here at Thacker Pass or Pahimaha. And they're likely getting paid a lot of money for this. I don't know the numbers, but I would assume it's hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not over a million dollars, to do this work. The problem, of course, is that you know this isn't ancient history. These are people's ancestors and cultural heritage who live just right up the road from here um, at the Fort McDermott Reservation and on some of the other surrounding reservations. Um, the, the people of this region, you know, they look at this place and they say this is sacred ground. It's hollowed ground, really, because our ancestors' bones and, and, and flesh is in the soil there and, you know, has been integrated into the land there. And so the, the people of Red Mountain, which is a, a group that's come together to oppose this mine, from uh, the Fort McDermott tribe and a few other surrounding tribes, they have said that uh, bulldozing this place is like bulldozing Arlington National Cemetery. Uh, it's 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 an atrocity. It's a desecration. It's incredibly disrespectful to um, to the people who are the descendants of of those who are buried here. Um, so the Bureau of Land Management, which was the the main federal agency that's been involved in permitting this project, they say that there are no sacred sites here and that there are no human remains here. That's what's in the final environmental impact statement. They did not do an adequate job of consulting with the tribe because if they had, they would know that that's not true. Neither of those things are true. But that's what's in the official documents. That's what's in the permits. And that's why they they are moving forward with this. Um, This incredibly destructive process. And, you know, again, this company is going to make a lot of money by digging up these cultural sites, which is why, uh, you know, we're looking at this company and saying, this is not, you know, legitimate anthropology or archaeology in the modern world where it's no longer acceptable to rob graves. It's no longer acceptable to, um, you know, privatize and profit off somebody else's culture. Um, that's exactly what we're seeing here, and it's really despicable.
2: I'm thinking about who is defining sacred and what does sacred mean according to the Western perceptions of what sacred is, or is it the living language, the living ways of any culture that has now been, you know, set in chaos and there's remnants of culture, but yet the indigenous folks are in their own homeland, so to speak. And just being there is a culture that is sacred to the land. And yet the other way is that, no, we're looking, we designate sacred places. This is the humans, we make sacred places. But with Native people, sacred places are already there, defining humans. You see what I mean? Is that we Hmm. aren't making sacred places um, the sacred places make us. So in that difference, I think there's there's key terms there. I don't know, maybe that could be used for really redefining the language we're using in legal matters and whatnot, because this seems to be um, an inflection of, of laws that come out of the American Religious Freedom Act uh, back in 1978, and this is an, also an example, Max, of not allowing Native peoples to to express their their religious freedom so to speak but yet that religion is in context of what makes things sacred to the western western mindset what do you think about that legal legalese type of language that they're using to you know escape the 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 prospects that there are indeed cultural burial sites cultural sites that that are being removed by this company that you mentioned
4: yeah i think i mean it's definitely a a clash of cultures and a clash of world views you know some people take a sort of instrumental perspective on the natural world where they look at a mountain like this they look at uh this beautiful natural habitat this place that has supported humans and thousands of other species for a long long time and they just see what is that worth to us you know what what kind of money can we pull out of the ground there? One of my friends from the tribe, uh, his name's Day Hinky. He told me one of the first times that we met that people come out to this part of uh, Nevada, this part of Paiute-Shoshone territory, and they see a wasteland. They don't see many trees. They don't see you know big rivers. Um, they see a, a, a pretty hot, dry landscape at this time of year. It's windy. Um, they see a wasteland, and he said that th- that their elders come out to this place and they look out across the land and they see everything we need to survive is here everything and I think that's in some ways the difference between um a a a, a worldview that is really based on a relationship with land and with place and a worldview that is based on extracting from land what you need you know it's a colonial mindset that's still. Unfortunately, the defining mindset and attitude in the culture and economy of this country and, and most of the global economy, um, it's this colonial mindset that says we're going to come and take what we want in order to, to get wealthier, to increase our standard of living, to have more luxuries, um, to have what we want. And it, it really contrasts pretty strongly with the worldview that I've heard from from some of the elders who come out here and spend time at the, at the resistance camp um, at the protection camp here and take us walking out on the land and um, show us some of the edible plants, the first foods out here and tell us about fishing in the creeks and, and um, gathering willows for cradle boards and, and uh, you know, hunting their first deer on the mountain right behind us. And uh, you know, they're, there there's no desire there for uh, giant amounts of wealth, for, you know, the fanciest possessions. That's not what it's about. It's, I mean, it's really sad to me because I think the attitude of the dominant culture and the dominant economy is kind of like a spoiled child's attitude. It's like, I want more, I want more, I want more. It's never enough. Whereas, you know, it's been really humbling and an honor to get to know some of the folks out here, some of the elders who... Have this really incredible attitude towards life and towards the world and and have an understanding that you know what what really matters it 's not our money it 's not our bank account it 's you know having enough food to to feed yourself and your loved ones and and any guests or visitors you know having clean water having a, a place to sleep and having land having land that can support you I think that 's what we all need to be moving towards it 's really a more a more mature wise way of moving through the world.
2: I'm thinking about uh, the Paiute there and are using the Shoshone Yasser or are using that land, and they leave no trace. So I'm thinking along the lines of when we're defining sacredness in, in the Native way, it seems to go along with we can negotiate holy, we can negotiate sacred, but when it comes down to the practicality, in 2007 they The United Nations Signs Declaration Declaration of Rights for Indigenous Peoples. And so what came out of that was the free, prior, and informed consent. So when I hear or read the word consultation with mining companies, with the extraction corporations, that means to me that Native people have actually compromised a little bit to allow the voice of of those who are extracting and yet it sounds so smooth that we're going to remedy the situation. We're not going to pollute the land, but yet there is this, this idea that as long as you brought a native person into the room, um, we're not going to talk about the elephant, so to speak, but at least they were in the room that's considered consultation, but yet there's no consent with that. Would you explain that?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And so, under uh, various U.S. laws, including the National Environmental Policy Act, uh, the National Historic Preservation Act, um, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, probably others, uh, there are requirements for consultation um, ar- around impacts to, you know, cultural sites, archaeological sites, and so on. Um, I'm sure many of your audience knows this a lot better than I do, and probably understands the law better than I do. Um, but those requirements for consultation are generally not requirements for for consent. Um, so what that means is just that these agencies and the corporations for which they're often working, um, they have to they have to talk to the the tribes. They have to talk to the the nations. Um, the, the original people of the land that they're trying to often destroy and, and consult with them about, uh, about what's there, about the history, about impacts and so on. It's really kind of similar with um, the National Environmental Policy Act and uh, destruction to the natural world, destruction to you know, non-human species and forests and meadows and grasslands. Um, the law doesn't actually say that you can't harm the planet. It just says that you have to do a study, and you have to lay out all of the uh, all of the destruction that the project will entail. It doesn't actually make it illegal to do that destruction. Um, so so consultation is the law, and um, you know it's it's really it's really disturbing to me actually because just the other day. This thought occurred to me. I'm sure it's not an original thought. I'm sure it's, it's, many people have thought about this. But can you imagine, in the context of of a relationship, of a of a romance or romantic interest, if the law said that you didn't have to obtain consent, you only had to do consultation, right? <laughs> can you you know how absurd that is? How disgusting that is? If you can imagine, you know, uh, a law that basically justifies. Uh, you know, sexual abuse in some sort of way like that. That's really what the law is right now um, around native cultural sites and uh, sacred sites and so on. It's, it's a way to, um, to, to um, make people believe that the process is, is, is a just process, that it's a democratic process, that it's a collaborative process, When in reality, it's not Um, the law. These laws are not very strong. Um, They are not very good protection for, for the land, for traditional people, um, for indigenous people, or for, you know, biodiversity and non-human life. Um, These laws are pretty weak in general. And um, we can never forget this. We have to, we have to remember that because um, you know, too often, we forget that so much of the, the regulatory law in this country is not set up to really regulate corporations and regulate destruction. It's really set up to regulate us. It's set up to regulate you know, people. It's set up to regulate democracy, to regulate ways that we can fight back, um, that we can resist these projects. And so I think it's important to understand that.
2: Yes, I think that's important too. Max, would you let us know um, in the future when the, this company actually comes on to the land and starts digging, basically, and the reaction of Native people at that point? You said it's unseated land, so who's giving them permission to come on to that land in the first place? The Northern Paiute and the Shoshone are sitting there with the other allies of activism, allies of Native people, and especially the uncompromising Earth, I would want to put it that way, because I think no one's asking Mother Earth for consent. Native people are, and I think I think you were alluding to that fact that the Western mindset thinks that the Earth belongs to them when it's actually the opposite way. And so in an abuse situation, they're abusing the Earth as well as Native people, And but the uh, psychi- psychologies of the Western hemisphere are rationalizing, as you said, you know that everybody needs this energy and even including the native people but earth cannot support the life that the destruction that we're causing as humans to to her so i think there's some point that we're missing here some alo- somewhere along the line that we have to do something now because we've been sort of doing our best and now from what i hear from your voice and other Native peoples, that you are doing what's required now of Mother Earth. You know, Mother Earth is requiring the human people, human beings to do what they need to do to be resilient to the destruction. And so I want to thank you for, for being here and um, give us your contacts at where we can look this information up, Max.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So on July 7th, we're having a rally in Carson City, Nevada at the regional headquarters of Far Western Anthropological Research Group. We uh, will be having some prayers from some elders from this area, uh, some songs, um, and we'll be delivering letters to that company uh, explaining the opposition. Um, There are a lot of people within the archeology span and anthropology community who are standing in solidarity with us against this mining, who are standing in solidarity with the people of Red Mountain, Um, to protect their ancestral cultural sites. Uh, The next event we have coming up is on July 10th, which is a missing and murdered indigenous women gathering, uh, sunrise gathering and prayer up here uh, at Thacker Pass at Pahimaha on the site of the proposed mine. Um, So that'll be an early start uh, on Saturday the 10th. So we've got folks coming in mostly the, the night before Spending the night out here and participating in that morning ceremony. We've got a direct action uh, training coming up on July 24th and 25th here at Thacker Pass, Pahimaha at the camp. Um, You can find more details about all of these events and more on our website, which is protectthackerpass.org. That's T-H-A-C-K-E-R, Thacker, protectthackerpass.org. And we're also on social media at the same name, Protect Thacker Pass, or you can find the people of Red Mountain at Protect Pahimaha. Uh, we, we, We link to that regularly from Protect Thacker Pass as well. So you should be able to uh, follow that or um, follow links on our website to find the people of Red Mountain directly.
2: Thank you so much, Max Wilbert. Just keep going, Um, you know, protect those sites that you do out there along with the people. And it's an honor to have you on First
4: Voices again, Max Wilbert. Thank you so much, Teokasen.
2: Max Wilbert is a writer, organizer, and wilderness guide, and has been part of grassroots political work for nearly 20 years. And he's an author and his essays have been published many places, including Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. And the latest authored book is Bright Green Lies How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. And we reviewed that on the show a few months ago. <laughs>